Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you because we the people. Episode 31, Essential Workers. Well, we are back after the Thanksgiving sojourn, Thanksgiving at home for most of us. How was your uh, break, Chris? It turned out to be really nice. Uh, you know, we did, a, we did a backyard day, essentially, for immediate uh, family. And at some point, it got into a, a probably overly competitive game of cornhole. <laughs> yep. And uh, and so the, it was it was tense but tender, right? Uh, and and in the end, you know, I found my I found my rhythm, and I think I still managed to lose to my daughters, but that's no disgrace, is it, Josh? No, but you you guys were uh, wiping down the the beanbag every time, right? <laughs> we were socially distancing from the beanbags. Yeah, it made it the was, game a little bit more difficult, but right, yeah, a beanbag full of Purell. <laughs> How was your How was your holiday? Uh, it was fine. You know, we were. It was just the five of us here. I, you know, I realized I, I did uh, not. Me and me and my wife did. You know, shared the cooking. But um, man, it's it's a hard it's a hard meal to scale down, right? It's the kind of meal that it needs to feed like ten people or something like that. It's hard to do it for five people, especially when you know your three kids don't all eat that much food. Right. Um, but it was it was nice. You know, I will say that. As much as you know, I missed having the family around. We usually have uh, my my in laws and, and and my parents often all together and and sort of other people as well. It was far less stressful than you know to have to get everybody together and 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 figure out stuff for people to do and all that kind of stuff. Just having to worry about putting a meal on the table was uh, was was easier, but it was still you know still sad. We that um, you know we're, we we can't see people that we love because of the failure of our country, right? Right. And it's not really Thanksgiving if there isn't a lot of stress, you know, it just doesn't seem <laughs> yeah. the same. Yeah. Well, I, I, but that's my, it's my favorite holiday still. And I, I what sure. I said in my classes that, you know, uh, the, I met with students the Wednesday before is that as an historian, this, this, uh, holiday is extremely distasteful for many reasons, but man, it's just a, a, a pure holiday. That's really, um, you know, it's commerce is really you know, not connected to it as much as people want to turn Black Friday into a holiday. Mm-hmm. It's just about getting together with people you love and eating a lot of good food. Um, mm-hmm. So what, what could be better than that? We just got to get that pilgrim story out of there. And then we'd have a, a truly pure holiday. That yeah, that's a good point. I think uh, it was, a, you know, the, the holiday extended through the weekend. And I thought that it was a, a almost wonderfully slow news cycle. You know, another other than the you know the constant drumbeat of the advancing coronavirus uh, in political terms, but but there was a great weight I know lifted off your your shoulders right during the the holiday uh, when it was uh, announced that uh, that Donald Trump was going to perhaps issue preemptive pardons to the three oldest Trump kids. Preemptive pardon doesn't even make sense, right? That's <laughs> what does that mean? And the stupidest thing about it, like the stupidest thing this comes up with everything is then people have to debate, you know, what did the founders intend with the pardon? Uh, 
I, I don't know the founders intent. I haven't read the anti-federalist papers or anything like that recently, <laughs> but I'm guessing, uh, you know, founding your own fail sons preemptively is not something that uh, Monroe had in mind or anything like that. I don't know my founding fathers, to be clear, but uh, well, Monroe's, it, Monroe's think, one of them, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Jason, uh, Jason Monroe, is that right? No, no? but, I, you know, listen, <laughs> you're close, you know, yeah. is that... Uh, I think it, I think in fact it says in the Constitution, right, in, in oversized letters, it, it says preemptive pardons shall be allowed in the case of uh, the deep state, fending off the deep yep. state. Uh, if Dominion so, Dominion machines are being used to tally election electoral votes. <laughs> yeah, I actually got you know my wife. Um, our our listeners now know about the Onion versus New York Times yeah. headline, and I actually uh, was able to get her. Uh, because I read the line about uh, Trump looks into preemptively pardoning his three <laughs> oldest kids, and and she thought for sure that was the onion. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, like I said last last time, man, you can't you can't out onion reality. Is that <laughs> reality has preempted the onion? <laughs> I know. Um, I know. I'm still struggling with why purple alert is worse than red alert in coronavirus terms. I, I go, it, yeah. I mean, I think the founders, if that's not in the Constitution, it should have been in the Constitution. But I don't know. Had they invented purple yet? Then I, I don't know my uh, my color history. Yeah, when I, I know that mauve was invented in the late 19th century in a German chemical factory. Purple. Right. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. Um, I think it's Union Carbide came up with it in 1952. Okay. I think. Yeah. But does that mean now that when you grade your students' essays, you'll use a purple pen? Yeah, I got shamed out of using my red pen, but maybe I got a few years of using purple before that people come down on that as, as being too negative. <laughs> it's, I just got to find that purple pen. It's harder to find the purple pens, I think. Yeah, yeah, I know. Maybe like in a Crayola crayon box or something can find one. But yeah. uh, they don't, I don't think they produce professional grade purple uh, grading pens. I'm very, t I'm very, uh, well, I mean, now that we're all, we're doing this all online, I don't even, I don't even need pens anymore. I don't even know where pens, I can never find a pen anymore because you don't no, just uh, tuck one right behind your ear just to get the feel of it. You know? Oh man. I, I do like that feeling though. Yeah. I like pencil. Pencil works better for me than pens, but, uh, yeah, it is a good feeling and it tucked me on my ear and then instantly forget that it's back there and, and go searching for a pen. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my jam. Uh, or chewing on the end of it and the cap almost gets lodged in your throat i you know there are a lot of things that can happen while you're in quarantine yeah uh that's for sure what uh so what have you been hearing in the news what uh what kinds of things well, have you drawn yeah i was i was itching to uh to record last week even even during the holiday just because there's so much bad history being done and you know i like nothing more than <laughs> reading you stuff that will make you angry um so i i did i collected some of the worst of of the uh historical uh uh interpretations i guess from some of our leading public figures mm. and maybe i thought i could read and, and maybe you can react to a few of these you might recognize this first one i'm not going to tell you who it is maybe i'll really reveal that later but <clears throat> quote just today for instance the new york times called the pilgrim story a myth and a caricature in the food section no less maybe the politically correct editors of the debunked 1619 project are now responsible for pumpkin pie recipes at the times as well Ding, ding, ding. That would be Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. Yes, yes that's Tom Cotton. Uh, yeah, I, he, I got him on, uh, on, on alert, you know, whenever a Tom Cotton quote <laughs> yeah. appears anywhere in the, uh, the media sphere. 
I get a little notification up. on my phone. Yeah. I call him, uh, I call him job security. Yeah. Because as long as we have uh, somebody in a, a position of official uh, prominence saying such asinine things, uh, I figure I got a job still, you know? Yeah. Only Tom Cotton could link, uh, 1619 project to uh to the food section in the new york times yeah and i wonder what is it is this going to be the beginning of the food wars you know sort of traditional thanksgiving fair versus what um maybe soul food or something that he would associate with 1619 right i mean does that become part of the culture war now i guess everything's part of the culture war yeah i mean just constantly on the edge of just um you know pure anger at people dismissing this uh, this popular history uh so that was the first one i knew you would recognize that one because being the the tom cottonhead that you are but uh let's go to this next one so so this one um relates to this uh you know the fact that our election is still going because there has been no concession as of yet so this one says the america first agenda is just in its infancy there are 75 million of us also did you know some japanese soldiers kept fighting for decades after the war <laughs> Well, first of all, I did know that because as a young man, as a youth, I watched Gilligan's Island. Yes, I and, remember that episode, yeah. Uh, and you might remember the episode where there was uh, a character, you know, purportedly a Japanese soldier from World War II who had not gotten word of the surrender and was still fighting and really took it to the castaways um, until they could convince him, I think. And I don't remember how they did it. but So I'm going to say that was... Gilligan, who said that. <laughs> it was not Gilligan. It was the Gilligan of the U.S. House of Representatives, Paul Gosar of, of Arizona. Oh. Um, who apparently, I mean, linking his movement with Japanese soldiers continuing to fight a war they had lost <laughs> <laughs> in isolation on, on tiny islands um, is maybe not the argument he, he thinks it should be. Um, also linking his 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 people with, with fascist soldiers, um, maybe wow. also... Not uh, not thought through so much. Right. Um, all right. Moving on to the next one. This one's short and sweet. We mm. stopped asking. This is this one. I think you'll really relate to. This is right in your field here. We stopped asking for mis- for permission to go to church in 1776. We stopped asking for permission to go to church in 1776. Now I know you're not necessarily okay. uh, colonial America. That's not your background. But I know I'm sure you read a lot in that. So that's that's true, right? That under the the English. American colonists had to ask permission to go to church. Isn't that? You needed a note uh, signed by your mother is how that went. Yeah, that was the requirement. Uh, I'm going to say that's Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. (laughs) Uh, Maybe. No, no. It's uh, Lauren Boebert, a Colorado representative. Uh, I don't know if she's elected or not, but uh, she was she was very angry. She couldn't go to church Mm. because these lockdowns. Um, I think I think Justice Gorsuch is from Colorado. Is that right? So I'm close yeah, maybe, there. Maybe, maybe a relation. Yeah. All right. In the um, in the category of uh, racism, we got this one. China has a five thousand year history of cheating and stealing. Some things will never change. China mm. has a five thousand year history. I, when I read this, I thought, I think China scholars. You know, aside from the racism, might be matter about once again parroting that five hundred five thousand year history line, uh, because that's not really in vogue amongst Chinese scholars anymore to to uh, you know talk about this unbroken five thousand year history. So uh, of stealing, 
well, not even of stealing, just 5,000 years of history. That's like oh. an old trope. That's an old trope of this, this idea of Chinese continuity, 5,000 years of, of history. Uh, Vincent Leung mentioned that, how much he hates that idea on our episode uh, way back when. But I think the racism part is also pretty bad. Hmm. So I still need to come up with the, uh, uh, with the author of that quote. And I'm going to guess that it's Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, that's, that's a good guess. No, it's Marsha Blackburn, uh, Senator, uh, West Virginia. All right. That was my second guess because she's a, she is China scholar, isn't she? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like, yeah. like all these Republican, I mean, Tom Cotton is a Harvard educated scholar. So, I, you know, that's why I believe his, uh, his view of the, the pilgrims is true because anybody who been, went to Harvard can't be wrong, right? No. No, I, I thought it might be Mark, though, Zuckerberg, because uh, I know that uh, Facebook has announced that they'll be taking down posts that, um, you know, that uh, uh, in here, uh, false vaccination or anti-vaccination, uh, you know, what would we call it, disinformation. Right. Um, and so, uh, because up to this point, you know, the, the tech uh, companies, social media companies have, have resisted controlling content, as we know, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and yet in this case, because I think he's donated a lot of money to hospitals or something, he feels a kind of burden to uh, set the record straight when it comes to the, uh, the vaccines that are on the way. And so I looked it up and it showed a picture of Facebook in, in uh, Menlo Park, their headquarters. And the address for the campus there is one hacker way one hacker way beautiful and so i thought Too good. it would only it would only take a hacker to know a hacker and that's why i thought maybe mark had said that about china and 5000 years of stealing it's good that our, our major tech monopolies can choose to be responsible or irresponsible at their own whim uh, there's a thing there's a thing about you know on election night facebook was uh was limiting what what stuff could get through and then as soon as election was over they just opened the floodgates again uh so all kinds of misinformation get out and, and employees apparently were, were blown away that there it was that easy it turns out to create like an actual system of getting across true information and they they just chose not to use it forever uh turn it on for one day and then turn it right off again so uh, that's, that's that's when you know the system works all right, last one. This one will maybe lead us into our next topic here. But this one I just saw today, I believe. Americans built this country, and we don't need to import a third world slave class to make it successful. Americans okay. built this country, and yeah. we don't need to, to import a third world slave class to make it successful. I think that is the Jefferson Starship. <laughs> That's... Yeah, we built the city. Yeah, that's not would, that. Okay, yeah, that is not, this is Lauren Witzke, a Senate candidate from Delaware. Um, I assume. Oh wait, no. I, yeah, I, I don't know who our sen the senators from Delaware are right now, but uh, she she got some some pushback on this this idea that Americans didn't need to import a third world class of slaves to make it <laughs> successful. <laughs> fact check. There were many enslaved people. The senator's fact checker was toggled in the off position, I think, at the yeah. moment she said that. Uh, 
Yeah, I no, I, I thought it might have been the Starship, but you're right. Now it makes more sense that it would be somebody from Delaware that could be that badly misinformed. So, you know, I think we've learned our lesson. Well, you know, look, America's always had a kind of dysfunctional relationship with its own labor, you know, um, and you can do a labor history of the United States and pretty much fill up, you know, a 30-year career because uh, for, a, you know, a country that is so often, you know, prided itself on the, uh, you know, the, the integrity of the, the working man and woman and that sort of thing. Uh, as it turns out, there's no straight lines in American labor history, are there? It's mostly a lot of zigzags and, uh, you know, failed promises. And, and, and so, you know, as, as you and I were talking over the break, um, we've learned in the pandemic the fundamental uh, illogic of America's, you know, shall we call it its dysfunctional relationship to its own working people. Um, there was a, uh, if our listeners, there's a, uh, in the current issue of the New Yorker magazine, uh, a photo essay uh, that uh, details sort of the trials uh, during the pandemic period of those who were characterized as essential workers. Uh, and as we know, uh, many of those folks uh, working in, in sort of what we normally call the service industry uh, such as fast food workers, who, who happen to be the, the focus of this particular uh, piece uh, in The New Yorker, by the way, uh, by Richard uh, Rinaldi, uh, who's looking at uh, low-wage workers who were declared essential workers, and thus, uh, from the beginning of the quarantine last spring, uh, were still going to work even as, as the COVID rates uh, rose, and, and now once again, as the COVID rates are exceeding those of the spring, find themselves uh, in the uh, difficult position of interfacing, you know, with, with the public. And so it's a great piece. And I know you and I wanted to talk a little bit about what is this, you know, uh, seeming contradiction in declaring fast food workers to be essential workers. And yet, as the uh, piece in the New Yorker points out, typically being uh, compensated with what we call the minimum wage, which in the uh, federal statutes of, of, of the country, the, the federal minimum wage standard has not changed uh, since 2009. It is sat at $7.25 an hour. And as the author points out, it bears only the sketchiest relationship to the cost of living in many parts of the country. Now, mm -hmm. it is true that some 29 states have set their own higher minimum wage. So for example, here in California, you'll be happy to know, Josh, it's $12 an hour, which is still, you know, um, wildly insufficient, you know, given the, the cost of living and no, nor is it, uh, one would think a just, uh, compensation for one who has been declared an essential worker. Right. 
I mean, it's it's interesting, even just the, the term essential worker. I, do you remember hearing that before the pandemic? No, I don't. It, 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 it just kind of appeared and now it's it's used so frequently now. But it, it is worth kind of paying attention to the fact that it, it literally was just a, a term that was invented and came into vogue seemingly all at once to mm-hmm. define this new class of, of, of workers. And, and by the way, um, Los Angeles just put in their own lockdown order and they listed uh, podcasting as an essential essential task. So uh, we, are, we, we can apparently and, and we don't even make minimum wage doing no. this, by the way. I think we actually pay people to, to allow us to podcast. Well, so I don't know what that yeah. has to say for uh right. for the essentialness of our of our chosen. Well, we're here, considered but... menial labor. That that's why. Right. Well, yeah, we'll talk more about it. We're considered as podcasters to be menial labor. <laughs> <laughs> uh well, you know, I mean, as as the author points out, I mean, that was well said. He said that, you know, the minimum wage is both floor and ceiling at the same time for, for these workers, uh, who, after all, you know, face not only the, the, the normal rigors of, of working, you know, in the food service industry, you know, er- everything from, you know, hot grease splattering to, you know, any number of sort of on the job uh, hazards that one must routinely navigate uh, in fast food. But then also often what is a kind of backlash, you know, from from the customers who mm-hmm. uh, seemingly, yeah. um, you know, want to, uh, you know, maybe vent their own frustrations or something, you know, on on those who are still willing to, you know, to greet them and, you know, and and provide them with with the necessity of eating, you know, uh, so, yeah, uh, there's a, a a profile of a few of these folks, Alana Gano, a 26 year old, uh, who works at a restaurant uh, Bojangles in mm-hmm. Winchester, Virginia. Uh, says that in order to earn enough to care for herself and her two young children, she has to clock at least. 50 hours a week, 50 hours a week. Now, of course, 40 hours a week is considered a full-time job. So that's beyond, right? The full-time, another 25% beyond. Many of them at night, that is her shifts are at night because her kindergartner uh, is in school remotely. And so, you know, she has to be home when her child is uh, Apparently, even kindergartners now are, are learning remotely, Josh. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, what she said was struck me. It's very poignant. She says, I'm not asking, uh, Miss Ganodin, I'm not asking for like $20 an hour because I do get a decent paycheck and my boyfriend is a tremendous help. But if I were to work less, if I were to work less, she says, I wouldn't have the money for the rent, the lights, or food. Wow. I mean, I, it's almost like there should be a, a jungle for the 21st century, you know, the way that the, the jungle kind of opened people's eyes to the, the, the food packing industry. Um, you know, it might not be as gruesome as, as the jungle, but it, it might be just as depressing just to, to think about how many American workers are, are living just on the edge of, you know, keeping the lights on, putting food on the table and how many are, you know, can fall off at any moment. Um, and, you know, there's also that, that, that link between just the replaceability of the labor force, um, you know, whether it's in the meatpacking plants or in, in the fast food industry, um, that you know these are these are people who need these jobs. But if they get sick, if they get hurt, um, if there's any reason they can be fired, they can you can find somebody else in our you know this desperate society where people are looking for paychecks to, to replace them. Um, and it does you know create that that sense of contradiction between the idea of the essential worker and then the treatment of 
those workers who are deemed essential. Uh, yeah, you nailed it there, because I think what we want to talk about today is what we see, you know, as a fundamental contradiction at the very heart of capitalism and, and therefore being a capitalist uh, system, you know, at the very heart of our own society. Uh, and, and that strikes us, you know, as historians, because we and we've been talking about this now on a, on a you know a number of episodes. You know the sort of the origins of these systems that we live under, particularly uh, in that period we call the early modern era, uh, when they were created uh, mm-hmm. essentially. Uh, and so, even though the capitalism, for example, which is one of those those you know systems, those doctrines that come come out of that uh, era, even though capitalism is you know is is born of that era in which in which theorists, you know, some of the early you know promulgators of, of the ideas of capitalism. As a system, you know, they like to blanket it and their ideas in the same categories of, of universal truth and natural law as, say, Newtonian mechanics, you know. So, you know, whereas Newton has is, is inspired this new view of things, you know, by by uh, defining, say, you know, the laws of motion or the law of gravity as these kind of, you know, immutable laws universally true for all, all places and all time. You know, the, the inspiration there was for, for example, the, the early you know, theorists of capitalism to try to do the same. And so, you know, just as there, say, is a law of motion, there's going to be a a law of what? A law of supply and demand, you know, that supposedly sanctifies then what is this kind of universal truth, as if if man had discovered the pre-existing universally true form of capitalism by turning his telescope or something in the right direction, uh, you know, and, and almost Galileo-like said, there it is, there's capitalism. It's been here all along, it's true, and all all we have to do is conform now to it in order to be in line with, uh, what, the natural world or something? Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, turn the telescope, maybe, um, uh, you know, cutting it open <laughs> and seeing what's inside and figuring out how the, how the thing works. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, so science is obviously such a powerful phenomenon of, of that 17th century and on in, in Europe. But, but you're absolutely right that where it goes wrong is, is this idea that these truths that can be found about the natural world, which, of course, you know, I, you know in, in later scientists find that you know, Newton wasn't actually right. And there's, there's actually a lot more. Um, uh, it's a lot more complicated than, than he let on. But the idea that you can describe an economy, you can describe a society, you can describe a political system in that same kind of manner and with the same uh, you know, power of truth as you can these, these natural laws you can, you can make the case it's it's one of the most debilitating aspects of this kind of intellectual these intellectual currents of that 17th 18th century because what it ultimately does and and I want to quote here from a scholar named Pam Crossley or Pamela Crossley she's talking about a totally different subject but this this just hit me so so uh, squarely when she, when I read this she talks about particularisms versus universalisms um, and what she makes the case for is that essentially the the modern world is based on um, new particular particularisms uh, becoming universal. And so I think so much of that modern world that's that's come it, that comes into being is based on Europeans taking their own particular ideas that made sense maybe in a particular context for a particular class of people, for a particular set of relationships, and then assuming that what they discovered is something universal that applies everywhere at all times for all people. And I, I, I very much think that capitalism is, is an example of that this free market doctrine, 
you know, helped them describe the kinds of economic relations that they wanted to get involved in. But instead of just saying, this is a system that benefits us at this moment, they gave it this air of science, this air of truth, um, which uh, maybe didn't work very well. Well, and that's the thing. It's, it's hard to get your mind around it, you know, if you see it as something that is nearly what, uh, you know, universal, uh, universally true. I mean, it even right. posits a, a view of mankind, a kind of existential view of mankind as an economic animal, right? You know, uh, uh, they say homo yeah. economicus. You know, beyond Homo sapiens, there's Homo economicus, the, the economic man that that ultimately were driven, you know, almost in a kind of a, a Freudian analogy here, not by our libidos, but our desire to profit or something, profit maximizing. You know, but mm -hmm. the thing is, and and that's what we want to talk about in the episode today. When you start applying, when you get back those kind, get past them, you know, those kinds of oh, what do we call them, shibboleths or something. You know, when you get past them. Yeah. And you start looking for contextual moments, you know, of when something was actually professed or, or when some idea was like, and, and you kind of get in this granular sort of analysis. I mean, take something, for example, like, uh, and this is one of the main, you know, economic metrics, right, of the world we live in, the idea of a gross domestic product, the GDP. And this becomes then right. this kind of talisman for you know, how wealthy nations are and how well they're doing. And as you've pointed out in the last few episodes, it's an entirely Western construct and it often ends up getting applied to non-Western states that then are measured by their ability to either match or fail to match something like a GDP metric. But, you know, when you look at it, we got a couple of Brits, James Mead and Richard Stone by name about 80 years ago, who literally devised, they just, they just invented this idea of the gross domestic product. And they decided that what it would measure were all the market transactions in a particular uh, country, say, in a given uh, period of time, say a quarter, economic quarter, a fiscal quarter, or an entire year, what have you, and thus derive a kind of aggregate measure then of the economic health. But the way it was defined then as a market exchange meant that something had to be bought or sold or traded uh, within the formal marketplace. Mm -hmm. And so it left out a whole, uh, I'm tempted to say, a whole universe of labor that didn't take place. It wasn't met in, in the marketplace. In fact, one of their own students, uh, a woman economist by the name of Phyllis Dean, saw what she thought was the, the failure of this model to account for the full uh, constellation of labors that people perform in a given day. And she thought that uh, by, you know, excluding, for example, what we'd sometimes call domestic labors or, or you know, non-market mm -hmm. local labors, she said it was totally illogical to exclude the economic value of those things. So, for example, say, uh, looking at maybe, you know, traditional societies, maybe African societies, um, where you find women you know, in, in, in a sort of uh, what we'd call the domestic sphere, pre preparing and, and cooking food and, and collecting firewood, in some cases having to walk an hour just to get enough firewood to come back to their home or village and, and, and be able to prepare a cook stove, you know, or a cook pot or something, not to mention the water. And I actually came across, you know, a stat that said uh, globally still, it, it, it's like a, a half an hour walk each way for some huge percentage of the Earth's people just to get clean water, 
you know, just to access clean water mm-hmm. and, and, and bring it back. So the fact that this, this kind of labor, which is just as essential because it's essentially therefore doing what, say, fast food workers are doing, which is uh, the one thing that, you know, Maslow's hierarchy says we got to do, which is eat, right? You know, um, mm-hmm. but not being counted in any sort of formal economic metric, metric then. And, and it leads to then what I would call, you know, another part of the problem uh, along these lines and the fundamental flaw, if you will, of this, of this design uh, is that it has to do with something much more like just good old fashioned prejudice because, Look, never mind the market. The fact that the, that most of the laborers doing this kind of work tend to be female reflects then yeah. a kind of uh, inherent bias, you know, whether we want to call it, you know, patriarchal bias or what have you, which was certainly prevalent in the, you know, the origins of these systems and, and to a great extent is perpetuated today, leading to what, uh, you know, some call the invisibility of female labor, uh, whether they be fast food workers uh, or uh, domestic workers, what have you, a great number globally, a great percentage, in other words, of these workers uh, are, are female. And so that's not a coincidence either, because these supposedly immutable economic metrics that make up capitalism actually, in fact, as we find when we look more closely, reflect plain old garden variety prejudicial thinking. Yeah, it's it's erasure, right? It's erasure of of this activity of these activities that have been fundamental to human survival for forever. I think it's Yuval Noah Harari, who we've mentioned a few times on this this podcast, who makes the case that that preparing uh, meals is probably the activity that humans have spent more time doing than maybe any other single thing other than sleeping mm-hmm. across our history. Right? It's it takes up more time and more effort, and you know it, it also we see this. I see this all the time in discussing. Um, you know, agriculture, early agriculture, is you'll see students who say, well, then, and women didn't work anymore, right? When, when men became more active in the actual farming labor, whereas women were the first people probably to, to plant and, and work with domestic crops, um, eventually it became uh, 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 productive enough that men stopped going out hunting in some societies and took up agricultural labor. And I'll have students who say, and then women <laughs> didn't work any longer. Right? You know, 10,000 years ago already, their, their labor is being devalued. Um, and I think, you know, what, what we really see, and this is something we want to talk more about as we go on, is that we have to separate what's valuable from what is valued, right? And, and there's so much valuable labor that's done across societies, across human history, but that labor is not always valued equally uh, for those in the power structure in those societies. And, and you know, when you point at GDP as, as an example, that it literally just erases so much labor, so much vital labor from these statistics and, and creates this very, I don't know, twisted version of, of, of history um, where you can look at, you know, these these statistics of economic growth and it says, um, well, the GDP in, you know, 1800 in, in India was, was so much lower than it is today, therefore Indians are better off. But it doesn't really reflect, you know, the kinds of things people did, the, the ways people survived, the access to land, the access to basic resources that existed, even amongst poor Indians maybe in 1800 that are not available to, uh, you know, slum dwellers in Calcutta today or something like that, or Kolkata uh, today. Um, it, 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 you know, it, what it ends up being is a statistic that, that purports to describe the world, but in many ways is constructing a vision of the world uh, and a very particular vision of the world at that. It's such an important point because while 
capitalism, let's say, presents itself as this kind of, um, you know, what would we call it, objective, rational uh, system that works according to, you know, these sort of efficient laws. When you see something as clearly prejudicial that's rooted not in the Newtonian universe, but really the minds of men, you know, literally in this case, then mm-hmm. you, you begin to see yeah. just how flawed the, the entire construct really is. And and listen, if you're not comfortable with that, I mean, you can even borrow, you know, the metrics from within. I mean, I, you know, I, I took, you know, econ in college. I actually kind of liked it because, you know, it, at a very granular level, it, it discusses things like, as you point out, you know, what do we value? How do we make decisions about the things we value, how do we apportion them and, and share them or not? And uh, so if you look at it, and we're going to talk about more here in a minute in a historical context, something like opportunity cost, which is very much in line with microeconomic theory, you know, the, the, the question becomes then, so without a wife, let's say, to tend to the children at home, how would that guy go out and do his farming? Or how would he go out to a factory and have the time or the energy to fulfill his, you know, stereotypical role as breadwinner or something? But the only part Mm -hmm. that the metric covers then is his actual labor in that market uh, for labor, you know, wage paying in the case of a factory worker, let's say, and the product that comes from his labor. But he's only able to do that you know, because he can afford, you know, in a sense, you know, the opportunity cost of having a wife at home that he would otherwise have to do or pay for himself. Right. You know, in other words. So uh, and yet that doesn't make it in, you know, into the equation. So here's what I here's what I, I suggest we do here in our next segment. You know, as we look at some specific, you know, kind of historical context you know, for my part, I'll, I'll talk a bit about early uh, colonial America, which was really the crucible of capitalism, mm-hmm. you know, and see if we can get a sense of, of why these contradictions took root in the first place. What do you think? Let's do it. Well, folks who listen to History Against the Grain won't be surprised uh, to know I got an axe to grind <laughs> with early American history. <laughs> Man, your axe must be really sharp by now. <laughs> As uh, Well, let's call it the standard version history of America. Having just finished Thanksgiving, we ought to be in a good place to appreciate that New England uh, in early colonial America, that is to say, uh, you know, Massachusetts and Connecticut and Rhode Island, the region we call New England, was... Um, sort of enshrined early on, uh, probably because of the fact that they, they created two of the first sort of powerhouse colleges, Harvard College and then Yale, uh, and thus had a whole, you know, uh, several generations of historians to come out of those institutions that were eager to uh, to enshrine their, their region uh, of New England 
uh, in the mythology, the growing uh, you know mythology of what would become the American Nash, the American nation, and American national history. So you know what do you get, Josh, when you think of New England? You get well, okay, that's the birthplace of uh, religious freedom, let's say, or even political liberty, right? You know, you get the Sons of Liberty and right. the American Revolution in Boston and that sort of thing. Um, witch burning? Can we, can we throw witch burning in there? Is that is that off topic? <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a selective memory. Yeah. Did I mention that? <laughs> um, the intellectual wellsprings, you know, of, of the New England uh, literary and, and you know, uh, philosophical traditions. People, you know, by the 19th century, Ralph Waldo Emerson. I'm, I'm going to come back to, to uh, Emerson here in a little bit. But Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, Hawthorne, uh, you know, uh, um, Herman Melville. I mean, there's no shortage of, of great writers, artists, etc. also uh, associated with that, that tradition. And then uh, I guess finally, I would say in the standard version of American history, uh, typically New England gets credited with the, the beginnings of capitalism. Um, you know, the New England merchant, uh, the New England shipper. It's John Hancock, after all, who's got the big signature right there in the Declaration mm-hmm. of Independence. And, you know, his family was in and shipping and and uh, and so there's a decided um, kind of bias, you might say, in this historical writing right up through the the national period in the 19th century uh, that that wants to see New England, you know, as the kind of you know protean uh, you know birthplace of of all these things that are somehow exceptionally American. Uh, that, that somehow lend to this idea of, of you know, American exceptionalism and the, and the foundings, the founding, we'll call them the founding mythologies of the United States. There's really no better example than, you know, something like uh, Thanksgiving and the story of, of the pilgrims. And uh, well, OK, but we're going to skip that one. We're not going to I'm not grinding my axe uh, there in Plymouth today. Instead, I want to talk about some work um, that I've been doing and, and some things I've been reading, in particular, uh, a, a doctoral dissertation from about six years ago now. Uh, Felicia Taylor uh, wrote a, a doctoral dissertation at Rutgers uh, looking at um, early New England uh, labor, especially the labor of enslaved women uh, before the revolution. Uh, in uh, in Massachusetts, and so already we're adding a wrinkle because typically when we think of the New England mythologies, we don't think of slavery, do we? No, I mean, if anything, we think of the opposite, right? Because of the you know William Lloyd Garrison and the, the abolitionists of of, of New England. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I think it's very much it's there, and I think I'm you know as a non-American historian, I'm aware that there people did have slaves in New England, but it certainly is is presented often as. The counter to the the slaveocracy of the South is this the free exactly. territories of the North. Yeah, yeah, and there's all kinds of reasons for that, which I won't go into uh, here today. But I think it's I think yeah, we're on safe ground there. But you know, then it's kind of like looking you know uh, more closely at some of these you know hallowed truths of capitalism or something, because what you find is, uh, for example, where, well, and I'll I'll put it in the form of a question to you, Josh. Where do you suppose the first law was passed in early colonial America, the first law was passed that legalized slavery. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing this is going to be wrong, but I'll tell you what I would assume that it would be a place like Virginia, maybe South Carolina, sure. um, you know, one of these states where we associate with 
the beginnings of North American slavery. Um, but I'm guessing you're going to tell me that's not the case. Yeah, and that's very generous of you, by the way, to, to play straight man <laughs> yeah. uh, to me here. But yeah, no, it's it's Massachusetts, right? 1641, uh, the the what was called the Body of Liberties uh, passed in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1641 was the first uh, formal statute to legalize slavery, uh, and it was within just a few short years of that then uh, a host of of Boston merchants, good Puritans, you know, got together to organize what was essentially the first uh, slave trading consortium uh, in the mainland colonies. Mm -hmm. uh, this, is, this is over 100 years, I mean, you know, 130 years or so in advance of the American Revolution, just for context here, right. you know, and you already have a kind of uh, consortium of, of New England interests who are, uh, you know, shipping and, and in the shipping business, but who are organizing specifically their shipping interests to, uh, you know, become involved in what would be the transatlantic uh, slave trade. So, all right. Yeah. All of that's uh, coming out of New England, as, as uh, Felicia Taylor said, you know, the Boston becomes the mart of the West Indies. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the, Boston becomes a critical uh, player in these, this expansive world, the British Empire throughout the Caribbean, uh, not so much because uh, plantations of the type you were, you were recalling, right? You know, when you think of the, the tobacco plantations of Virginia or the rice plantations of Carolina, or the sugar, you know, uh, plantations of Barbados and Jamaica. Not because there are going to be those those types of plantations, although there there will be Josh plantations on Long Island. I just have to get that in there. And Long Island at the time was considered to be part of New England, so that's a, kind of a trick question. But no, no. If if we look at Massachusetts, you won't see because the climate, the soil, the temperature, all that kind of stuff didn't lend itself to that sort of cash crop agriculture. But I think I've said in an earlier episode that doesn't mean Boston didn't have plantations. It's just that their plantations were offshore. Right. They were in Barbados. They were in Jamaica. They were in Bermuda and these kinds of places. But much of the financing, much of the shipping, and also the provisioning of those uh, British plantations uh, was carried through the you know the sort of commercial artery of New England and of Boston in, in particular. Now, that has often gone probably underappreciated, but it has also led to a second problem, and that is to assume then that because there weren't these plantations, that therefore there wasn't much of a black population in New England either. And strictly speaking, if all we're going to do is count, you know, aggregate in aggregate terms, uh, count per capita, you know, populations, it's true there was a, a much smaller a per capita population, let's say, of black lives in colonial Massachusetts or, or maybe Rhode Island or Connecticut than there were in some of those plantation colonies uh, like Virginia. But that's not to say, therefore, that either there weren't any or that the presence of black lives in those places uh, didn't also have a kind of great um, cumulative effect on the way those colonies operated. And so what I want to do here is look at not just so much the numbers. I mean, I can give you numbers. I can tell you, for example, that there were uh, some 1,500 uh, black men and women counted in Boston's census in, say, 1742. Uh, that was actually a 400% increase, let's say, since 1700. So in the first decades of the 1700s, you're going to get a steadily 
growing black population, though it doesn't begin to match in aggregate terms, say those uh, demographics and, and some of those other colonies. But nevertheless, over 1,500 then black men and women, the majority of them enslaved, living in the cradle of Liberty, Boston, you know, on the eve of what becomes the revolutionary, you know, sort of moment for Boston. Um, but even more than numbers, and, and what I want to say is that though these folks were often written about at the time as being kind of marginal players, marginal uh, laborers, let's say, to the more powerful financial interests of, say, Boston shipping or even, you know, the fishing industry, you know, off Cape Cod or something, that that designation once again reflected much more, I would say, about the essential, you know, prejudices mm -hmm. of those who are writing the stories, uh, that is to say, propertied whites, who are now in the position of narrating the stories of places like Boston, then it does the actual truth. That is to say, in other words, that those men and women who were enslaved in early Boston from the 1640s going forward, all the way to the American Revolution, might just as well and aptly be, I think, defined as essential workers mm -hmm. as, say, fast food workers would be today, but for the same reason, therefore, often ignored or erased, if you will, in the historical accounting, not to mention the, you know, the fundamental economic metrics that measured things like prosperity and the colonial economy and that sort of thing. But what I want to say then about it is that these folks were just as vital uh, you know, to their, their respective contexts, uh, cultural, uh, economic contexts, as, as say, uh, those we call essential workers uh, today, both because of the labors they performed and because, once again, of what would have been the opportunity cost of replacing them. Now, so let me mm. come right to the point here, is that there was a terrific labor shortage in colonial New England. And by labor shortage, I mean the availability of white English laborers to do any number of jobs, any number of occupations that were considered essential to the function of the, the economy. Now, we always have this notion, don't we, that the, the, the people who are coming to the colonies are mostly what, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, sturdy maybe, uh, you know, English Protestant uh, types, the kind of people that show up in the Thanksgiving, you know, when your kids dress, dress right, up right. for Thanksgiving, you know. Buckle hats. Uh, yeah, but as it turns out, by far the greater percentage of actual immigrants, if we want to call them, you know, migrants to the colonies, uh, well into the 1800s are coming from where? From Africa. Yeah, they're coming from Africa. And so there's no Ellis Island, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we think of immigration, we think of, you know, Eastern Europeans, Southern Europeans, et cetera, maybe, you know, uh, people coming from China or, you know, kind of Asian migration streams or something in a much later period. But we're talking now about a period in the early colonial that lasts nearly two centuries. So, I, you know, again, not just a long weekend, right? I mean, right. this is a significant foundational part then of what, you know, we might more appropriately term the founding 
you know, of, of what becomes the United States of America. And so, yeah, okay, so there's a dreadful labor shortage, um, you know, because, and I could go in, but, you know, let's suffice it to say, there wasn't a lot of incentive for sort of poor English laborers, you know, to come all the way, you know, from, say, you know, Bristol or Liverpool or someplace, come all the way to Boston, you know, a, a hazardous, you know, trip by sea, you know, just to, to have the same kind of labor opportunities they could have, you know, back home. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, un unless you had land sitting there waiting for you, uh, the, the, it wasn't strongly incentivized. So as a result, very early on, you know, the, the sort of uh, Boston fathers, if you will, you know, the folks we like to sort of mythologize as, you know, the Thanksgiving fathers, the Puritan fathers, they, they had a real problem on their hands because if they wanted economic viability, they had to find a labor supply. And that labor supply is going to have to come, you know, mostly by way of this slave trade that is uh, either directly, ultimately from Africa or from the other English uh, plantation colonies throughout the West Indies. So you're going to get a lot of sort of, you know, uh, African people that are coming by way of Barbados or, you know, some of the other colonies uh, to places like Boston. Now, automatically this meant there was going to be a market in labor, mm -hmm. but a slave market, you know, in other words, the buying and selling of enslaved laborers uh, for purposes of doing all these jobs that were considered essential to the Boston colony. And just as now is true for such uh, essential laborers, many of those who will be, uh, you know, bartered, bought and sold and traded uh, into this system will be women that is female enslaved laborers. And uh, boy, don't you see that when you start looking as Felicia Taylor did, uh, the author of this dissertation, at, for example, uh, advertisements in colonial newspapers. Uh, because from the very early history of the colony, the early 1700s, you're going to see a print culture arise in New England in the publishing of, uh, of newspapers. And it's part of the phenomenon of capitalism itself, a kind of print capitalism, mm -hmm. you might say, that becomes essential to these economic um, foundations. Because among other things, you know, the papers were, you know, sort of, um, you know, they communicated uh, vital e economic information. You know, uh, somebody like Benjamin Franklin would be famous for his almanacs. And the almanacs often concerned themselves with all kinds of uh, information that was pertinent to New England's farming economy, let's say, or it's, uh, you know, it's, it's port economies. And so this is part of the, the rubric of, of capitalism. But one of the things you'll find, and I mentioned Ben Franklin, but even Ben Franklin, as, as he's still a gleam in his mama's eye, <laughs> when uh, Josiah Franklin, uh, because it's a, I think his father had 17 or 18 children, if I remember correctly, uh, his older stepbrother, Josiah Franklin, will be one of those who invests in an early New England uh, newspaper. And in the pages of those papers, Josh, you're going to see ad advertisements. I mean, part of the rubric of capitalism, you had to pay for your printing bill, and you did that by soliciting ads. Okay, we understand that. Uh, but what we might not appreciate is just how many of the ads that appeared from the beginning in those early New England uh, newspapers were slave for sale advertisements. Mm. That is, this buying and selling of enslaved laborers revealing, uh, you know, the role that the, the newspapers themselves would play in helping elite whites uh, secure and maintain economic privilege through this commodity exchange. It just happened the commodity in this case was human beings. Slavery and newspapers had 
what Felicia Taylor calls a close and synergetic relationship in colonial Massachusetts. And so you would see things like, uh, you know, and it's sort of shocking to read now in these advertisements from the early 1700s, a Negro woman to be sold very cheap for cash who understands household work, is sober, neat, and otherwise bears a good character. Hmm. Close quote. What do you think? Uh, I mean, it's, it's incredible. It just makes me wonder because, you know, the the um, typical way we think about this, this slave trade is that at least in these early periods in particular, that there's a, you know, far more captured men than women in West Africa. And I'm, I'm wondering if the prevalence of women in, in places like Boston is um, the, the idea that they would be less useful on the plantation. And therefore, there's this, this excess uh, supply of, of women who then end up in more of a domestic market, like in, in a place like Boston, where you're not having this large scale uh, you know, um, uh, plantation force that, that's needed. Is, does that maybe account mm-hmm. for some of that? Yeah, you're on the right track there because, you know, what, what historians of, of uh, slavery have shown, you know, particularly in the West Indies and, and in these plantation economies, is that, that a woman, an enslaved woman's labor had a kind of double meaning, right? There was the physical labor that the, that the person performed, but there was also the reproductive labor mm-hmm. that then added to the capital stock with every child being born to an enslaved woman because the laws were quickly written to acknowledge that a child, or as they would say, the issue of an enslaved woman uh, took the status of the mother. And so it was like capital accumulation to have enslaved children born. But because you don't have those kinds of plantations, there was going to be less of that uh, reproductive labor value, we might say. But nevertheless, the reason uh, then, though there is a strong demand uh, for uh, enslaved women or female laborers in Boston is because what you're talking about are essentially propertyed or elite white families wanting domestic laborers. Right. Cook and clean. So, and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, and that's what we have to stop. And, and, and you know, we can't just pass by by saying, oh, you know, okay, yeah, menial labor or something in a home. Um and so I want to get to that. But, but, but the first thing I want to notice is from the beginning then how these uh, female enslaved female laborers, African women, basically, or, or Creole, you know, maybe born in, in Barbados, but then brought to, to Massachusetts, let's say. So whether African born or Caribbean born. Uh, from the beginning, this market in, in human labor is, is, you know, oriented around defining women in certain ways. And so like the, the piece I just read had its own adjectives, but a variety of adjectives would appear in these ads. So, th- you know, words like sprightly, mm. healthy, strong, hardy, handy, uh, industrious, even lusty, likely, spry. I mean, these are the words that routinely become part of that rubric of buying and selling and advertising in the early print capitalism of the colonies. And yeah, the laborers, I mean, let's let's recall here when we talk about something like household or domestic service, this is all pre-industrial now. So there's no machinery, right? When we talk about sewing, we don't mean a, a sewing machine. We talk about the needle trade, right? right. I mean, somebody by hand, so sewing, you know, cooking, childcare, but not limited, you know, to those basic categories or, you know, or even food production, but, you know, cleaning, laundry, soap making, candle making, other routine chores associated with the maintenance of a well-ordered Boston household. And remember, there was no shortage of Puritan sermonizing 
on the family and the home being the font of a good, you know, Christian community. So we talk about something like value. We're putting enslaved laborers right in the heart of what the Puritans would have defined as their strongest Christian stronghold, the little commonwealth known as the family, but defining their labor as menial labor or, or defining it as, as marginal in terms of economic measures. You know, does that make sense? In other words, yeah. there's a kind of contradiction here because on the one hand, culturally speaking, the labors that these enslaved women would do would be at the very heart of the Puritan family. But in the economic metric, they're simply marginalized as menial. Well, it's also funny thinking about, you know, these ideas of the Protestant ethic and that kind of stuff about, you know, the value of hard work and industriousness and all this mm -hmm. stuff. And then realizing that, you know, within that context of these, you know, these, these Protestants who's whose labor and drive is supposed to be the basis of, of, you know, Western exceptionalism, all this kind of stuff, how much of the actual labor is being done by enslaved people and not by the actual Protestants who are given credit for, uh, for that exceptionalism, right? Their work ethic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Um, Look, I mean, and again, the point is to to see what we don't see, to see what's in plain sight. So doing laundry, as Felicia Taylor writes, involved pumping and carrying huge jars or buckets full of water, uh, building a fire, moving heavy wash tubs, as well as lifting and bending over heavy cauldrons of boiling water. Think of something like soap, Josh. I mean, you had to make the soap. There, I mean, none of this is retail yet, right? yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. So you're making soap from lye and rendered animal fat and ash that's just to get the soap you know and so the opportunity cost of this would be huge if who had to do it if either the the patriarch mm -hmm. you know the puritan patriarch or even you know the the wife the puritan wife and and to consider the time investment it would have you know you got to wonder so where where would have all the capitalists come from you know, if instead of, you know, managing a shipping enterprise, you know, dad was home making soap every day. <laughs> you know? Very different history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, then that's how you get the opportunity cost value, because clearly he would have had to surrender the income he made doing that other thing or some part of it in order to do these tasks that are now kind of marginalized as uh you know, it's marginal or, or you know, or, or menial, I should say. So, and the same was true on the farms, you know, this was town, this was country. If you're in the farm, it was feeding and tending the livestock, gar cultivating garden crops, all of which were essential in the sense that we use the word now to, to survival, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think that what this reminds us then is that the very roots of this system that we look at, we scratch our heads today and we see so-called essential wor workers being so poorly compensated and so many of them being women is that it was designed that way from the start in these cultures of enslavement and patriarchy to rationalize, you know, these, these forms of oppression in favor of creating a, a sustainable market economy, because otherwise you don't have a sustainable market economy. Uh, if you have to measure that opportunity cost of labor lost and that kind of thing. And so from the beginning, creating this kind of schizophrenic sense within capitalism of, of deciding what value means in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of the kinds of non-market labor that's happening, and, and essentially defining it with the stroke of a pen as menial and therefore not only just not 
compensated because if you're enslaved, you're not obviously being paid even a minimum wage, mm -hmm. you know? And that that is there then, that basic contradiction is there from the start. And, and so I ask you, is that what we're supposed to be worshiping at the altar of this, you know, uh, purportedly rational, immutable law of capitalism? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I think it is it's so much of the way that our history is, is taught and the way that, um, you know, this story of the modern world is taught is that this kind of commerce is good, that the kind of monetization of, of the global economy is is positive. That's a sign of development and this sort of thing. But, you know, you, you got as you're telling that story, I'm thinking, well, so if if these, you know, Puritan, uh, you know, heads of household had to make soap instead of what, selling opium to China, would that have been a better outcome or a worse outcome? Um <laughs> Yeah, so it really it really does, um, you know, impact not just the way we we think of that that particular past, but I think that the broader history of of that early modern to modern world in which what we're seeing is is you, I mean you can I don't want to put make this too melodramatic, but almost the spread of this in, infection, which is this infection of of this drive to monetize to to place value on certain tasks to devalue other tasks to um, in in that same way you know in the way the history is taught to devalue certain uh, ways of life, um, to suggest that those ways of life are, are too traditional, too old fashioned. They don't have value because they don't serve some kind of modern, monetized global capitalist economy. It really does have this impact of not just changing the way we think of, you know, this particular story of, of Puritan New England and, and uh, you know, the labor done there, but, but how we understand, you know, pre-colonial West Africa, how we understand you know, economic relations in, in early modern China, how we understand, you know, um, the status hierarchies in, in Japan. Um, and so much of that is really infected by this desire to see, you know, the market and, you know, that's a rational market and free trade and, and monetization as somehow inherent goods that suggest development and progress and these sorts of things. But, um, uh, you know, if it's not clear, I, I don't think that's the right way to, to look at it. And it's it's another example where we are valorizing um, a particular set of, of um, activities and a particular set of, of habits and ways of life that, um, you know, just because they're associated with a particular, a few particular places, not because they are inherently good or beneficial to to the world as a whole. Again, uh, very well said. And, and you know what? I mean, exactly what you're describing it's starting to gain some some traction. You know, I read a piece recently about a woman at University College London, an economist by the name of Mariana uh, Mazzucato. And I mean, this is a woman who has the ear now of, of Davos, right? Mm. The sort of annual convening of the capitalist overlords yeah. of the world, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and she's approaching this because of the lens of the pandemic and this idea of, of who we've defined as, as essential and how we need to rework our metrics because we understand much more fully the actual value, mm -hmm. you know, of the of the labors that that are that are brought to bear by by folks, and uh, who are traditionally marginalized under the old met metrics. And you know, it takes me back to to Boston. So I, you know, I mean, what she's basically saying is, it's just simply a matter of defining something differently. There's, I mean, right. you're not rejecting you know, the orbiting of the earth around the sun, <laughs> you know, yep. you're just saying, you know, we have to change the definition of something. And actually in 2008, the definition of, of gross domestic product GDP was changed partly uh, by some, you know, consortium of, of, of economic policymakers 
to include a wider range of labors that heretofore had been called either menial or unskilled, mm -hmm. uh, but still not recognizing anyway women's uh, domestic labor. So that, that I think is going to be the next one to fall. But uh, yeah, lest it, it not be clear, you know, what I'm saying about those enslaved women labors, and it's estimated, by the way, that one in three Puritan homes, white Puritan homes, you know, before the revolution had at least one wow. enslaved domestic labor, uh, often two, sometimes three, mm -hmm. uh, living essentially, you know, in the home. In other words, and so when you talk about something like presence, you know, you're, you're passing each other, you know, as you come through the threshold every day, you, you, you develop, uh, you know, familiar ties and, and intimate ties. And, and by the way, that was sometimes used as a, you know, a sort of it was a, the canard was that, uh, you know, New England slavery wasn't as bad because, you know, people lived more intimately and thus became friends and were nicer to each right. other or something. And because you weren't going out to the sugar plantation every day. But, you know, what what we know is this kind of work is brutally difficult. Um, you know, it, it wears out the joints, the back. You, know, you talk about something like, you know, making lye and doing uh, cleaning, laundry cleaning and fetching firewood for a fire and chopping the wood. I mean, you know, this is, this is you know, to say the least, vigorous physical labor. Um, and, and, and all the other terms, though, the what we call the architecture of, of enslavement throughout the Caribbean and, and the plantation world of the British Empire was all right there in Boston. I mean, there wasn't any more liberal in terms of what you're, you know, whether you had rights or defining personhood or anything like that. And so, you know, these people still suffered from all the same uh, kind of depredations and, and limitations and, and fostered cruelties. Of, of slavery generally, you know, so mm -hmm. it doesn't really make sense to sort of say, well, it was a milder form of slavery, you know, it, it's a kind of, uh, you know, kind of fundamental logic there. But uh, I think, uh, partner, as, as we go uh, sort of, you know, toward our outro day, we want to bring it back then from these, you know, colonial contexts, don't we? And, and once again, try to connect it up to, uh, you know, the history of now, the history outside our window. You know, I'm reminded of uh, something that we put in, in our last episode from the historian uh, Tony Jutt and his book, Ill Fares the Land. You remember he begins that book by saying something is profoundly wrong with the way we live life today and goes on to say that uh, for 30 years we've made a virtue out of the pursuit of material self-interest. Indeed, its very pursuit now constitutes whatever remains of our sense of collective purpose, writes Judd, we know what things cost, but have no idea what they are worth. And I think as we talk about uh, essential workers today, Josh, you know, it does come back to that basic point that uh, Tony was uh, making there about how we assess the value of things, right? Right. No, absolutely. I mean, this is something I've been talked about in my classes. I'm, I've been really, you know, trying to read up on and 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 explore deeper into this kind of post. Uh, this I'm sorry, 
period of decolonization um, that that's you know happening post World War II, um, because I, I find it so inspiring that a lot of these leaders in what had been the colonial world and later became these new nations, you know, they wanted to reframe in their own minds what the world could be and and how we could create a world on a different basis than than what had been built within these empires. And I think a part of that is is removing the um, the, the fetishization, I think, of, of, of profits and, and money and, and looking for some kind of higher good. Um, and as much as that maybe is not how things turned out, I still think it's really inspiring to, to, to read and, and hear the voices of people like Sukarno and, and, uh, um, and Nehru and, um, and uh, Nkrumah in, in Ghana, as they kind of spoke of, of, of their own visions and, and what freedom actually meant. And, you know, I think there's an extent to which freedom in in Europe, freedom in the United States, increasingly just came to meant freedom of, of capital, right? That that freedom was associated with the movement of, of capital. And so reading um, uh, Sukarno in Indonesia talk about, you know, what the purpose of, of humanity was. Um, it's not just to be um, this, you know, economic animal who's there to produce profits for others. He says, let us remember that the highest purpose of man is the liberation of man from his bonds of fear, his bonds of poverty, the liberation of man from his physical, spiritual, intellectual bonds, which have long stunted the development of humanity's majority. And he's speaking there of Asians and Africans um, in contrast to those who have dominated the world in the previous centuries. And it's a good reminder. And, and you know, I was talking to my class today that the fact that, that you know, the quote unquote third world that was developing out of this didn't ultimately live up to these ideals uh, that Sukarno and others were, were professing doesn't make them any less inspiring. And I think it's still really important today to think about well, what is our purpose? What is the purpose of societies? And the purpose of society, I would I would argue, is not to just produce the most profit, produce the most money, uh, produce the most GDP, but is to work for the for the betterment of of the whole. Um, and uh, and I, you know, for that reason, I think it's it's important to look back to these moments when people had a vision for the world that was different from the vision that that we're so often. Um, forced to, to, to see from, um, you know, like in that case of, of, of New England. Exactly. And, and not only uh, see those alternatives, but to see what is presented as this kind of fait accompli, right. you know, of capitalism, you know, to see it, um, you know, with sort of shorn of its, um, you know, its sacred garments, if you will. Mm-hmm. I mean, Look, you know, I mean, I, I know you do, too, but I, I remember reading, you know, Marx as, I don't know, an undergrad, but certainly as a grad student and reading Marx's, uh, Karl Marx's uh, assessment as critique of capitalism. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, with Marx a lot because of, you know, subsequent history and such, uh, a lot of it gets, it gets lost because, you know, people want to latch on to this, this sort of boogeyman of Marxism. You know, I mean, mentioned Tom Cotton earlier and right. you know, some of these folks, you know, um, you know, in, in terms of what was supposed, you know, the failure of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and, you know, but I, I tell you what, you know, for a, a kind of clear eyed assessment, historical uh, economic analysis of capitalism, it's hard still for my money, you know, to be Marx. And, you know, because Marx pointed out, he goes, look, it wasn't always this way. You had what he called the labor theory of value. You know, as people constructed their societies, they determined what was valued by what they needed most in a very basic way. Again, a kind of a hierarchy of needs, you know, right. where the most important things came first and then you know, became valued because they actually provided for strength of community and, and strength of connection and family and all these things. 
but then, you know, in, in the in the abstraction of the early modern, you know, capitalist imagination, what he calls the fetishism of money mm -hmm. replaces that labor theory of value. So if something becomes valuable insofar as it is reflected in the metric of money. And you and I were talking earlier about, you know, irony, irony, you know, money itself is an abstraction. It's a construct. It's essentially an agreement. You know, every time you pull a dollar bill or something out of your, your pocket, that the person on the receiving end is going to acknowledge it as valuable in the transaction. Uh, it's not because of, you know, Andrew Jackson's printed face or George Washington's quaffed self on a dollar bill <laughs> that makes that dollar bill, you know, as a medium of exchange valuable. It's the kind of, uh, you know, the, the agreement to pretend that it's valuable in the performance then of that transaction. And uh, when we realize, as as the you know the previous conversation about colonial New England was was meant to to at least suggest, is that these views, these constructs, these metrics, these uh, precepts of capitalism were created. You know, sometimes we think capitalism comes from where? Well, it comes from uh, you know what? Nature, uh, right? It, it's yeah, just... nature. It's born of like a you know Venus walked with it out of the sea or something. Right. Or we tend to see it where we tend to see it in the in the industrial systems of the 19th century. You know, and the Carnegies and the Rockefellers. But listen, listen, it's right there in colonial Boston. Mm -hmm. You know, capitalism is being created in the Atlantic world economy whose linchpin was the market for enslaved labor. Uh, and so I'm going to quote uh, one more person here and, and, and uh, uh, let us sign off. But uh, the, the writer and, and historian Francis Beale says, the system of capitalism and its afterbirth, racism, under which we all live, has attempted by many devious ways and means to destroy the humanity of all people, and particularly the humanity of black people. And of course, she's referring there to, you know, the, the origins of capitalism in that system of enslavement, which so selfishly and greedily, you know, marginalized uh, labor. And in and, and, and so doing has created down to our own time a kind of ongoing conceit maybe for you know, the types of people who do certain types of labor that is considered menial or marginal or unskilled or what have you, but which wonder of wonders in our own pandemic now, we have come to see through the, the fiction of that because we know that if that worker, you know, standing uh, all day, you know, for 10 hours at the drive-through window, you know, mm -hmm. of, of the local fast food isn't there, then then we don't, in effect, uh, get fed. So I, I guess what I want to say, uh, my friend, is that, uh, yeah, it's time to reclaim our humanity. This has been episode 31, History Against the Grain. We'll talk to you again next week. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one goes in your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see. So we